Welcome to The City Podcast, a ministry of Ambassadors Church in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website at wearethecity.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you are blessed by today's word. We're on a series. Could you put up my graphic, Zach? Uh, we're on a series called Faithful. Could you say Faithful. If you missed part one, you should catch it on the, on the podcast. It's up there. And it got like a lot of hits in, in a couple of days, which is awesome. It's really resounding with a lot of people. And, uh, and so what we're talking about is how we don't want to focus so much upon what we need God to do for us, but we want to focus upon who God is. And, and that changes everything. When we realize who God is, everything in our life changes. And so God is, God is faithful. And, uh, and so last week I touched heavily upon the life of Joseph, a man who betrayed by his own brothers, I mean, sold into slavery, thrown into jail for a sin he didn't commit. He ends up becoming second in command over all of Egypt. Fast forward a couple years, the same brothers who sold him into slavery now need Joseph's help. And we talked about how vengeance would say, uh, these brothers who sold them into slavery should now become the slaves of Joseph. Uh, but Joseph says to the brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And, and sometimes the plan of God takes 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years for it to come to fruition. But God always proves himself faithful. And no matter what the enemy designed for your destruction, I believe that God wants to use it for your destiny. And he's going to and he's gonna do something through it. And so whatever the enemy or, or any person in your life has tried to concoct to come against you, I really believe that God's power is great enough to reverse the whole process, turn it around and use it for your good. Can you say amen for that? Come on, I want you to tell your neighbor it's going to be for your good. For your good. For your good. So I'm going to read a verse for you. Uh, So this is Faithful Part 2. I'm going to read a verse. You don't need to turn there uh, because it's only one verse. Uh, But just listen into what the word of the Lord is for us. It says, Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is my favorite part. To a thousand generation of those who love him. To a thousand generations. I'm going to just kind of highlight some key words. It says, know that God is God. He is faithful. He keeps covenant. He is steadfast. And he, and he keeps his commandment to a thousand generations. A thousand generations. The word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning. God. You're so good, and and this word's about to be amazing. So, God, would you raise our expectation? Would you get our hearts and minds in the right place? And, And, Lord, I don't know if you're involved in sports games or not. I don't know if you're taking time to watch. I don't know. But Lord, would you just have, have your way? But show your favor, God, to this region and to this to the to in Jesus' name, amen. Not a sports guy, but might as well ask for God's blessing on it. Why not? God cares, right? I have a random glove here. I don't because I was picking up trash outside, and so I have an extra glove. Um, so back when I was 12, 13 years old, my dad took me to Citizens Bank uh, to open up my first savings account. Um, I remember this, remember this, do you remember that day? We went over to Citizens Bank. It's now closed. The branch is closed now. feels like a lot of Citizens Banks are closing. I uh, don't know what's going on, but they better keep my money because it's, it's still there. Um, so, so we opened up this savings account. And my dad was kind of explaining to me, you know, what a savings account is. It's different than a checking account. Like, you're not going to get a card or anything. I was 12, 13. Um, I was working at his dental office on Saturdays. And uh, so the money I would make would be direct deposited into this savings account. I never saw it. It just kind of went, it went there. And, uh, and, and so we went, we sat down. I signed, you know, my dad signed. It was a joint account between me and my dad. 
So through my teenage years, the money that I made uh, would all go to this savings account. I didn't have a checking account, so I couldn't use it, couldn't take it out. It was just, it was, it was there. And, you know, I was kind of a stingy little child. And uh, if anybody asked me for money, you weren't getting it. Like, I was, I was real tight-fisted. Uh, there's some stories that accompany that. Um, but but I, I, I eventually, you know, grew up, came of age, and, uh, you know, bought my first car, went to college. All that money was, was sitting there, and, you know, interest was nice. And, and, it, and I used it for, you know, college books and whatnot. And, uh, and that, uh, that account, you know, into my 20s, it was looking a little bit more hurt. I had other, I had my checking account now open at, you know, once I became an adult and uh, I started working and like a different job. And so I was kind of managing my own money and this check, this savings account that I opened when I was 12 was still kind of sitting there. Fast forward a little bit more. I got married. Now we were opening our joint accounts, right? And, and you know, that, that dual income, right? But dual income also means like dual bills. And so the, the money was coming in as fast as it was going out. You know what I mean? And, and, and I, I never realized the value of a dollar until National Greed was asking for it and, and, uh, and, and taking it for gas and electric. And I called it, yeah, I called it National Greed. Um, that's what Kate Verdeans probably would call it anyway. So, and, and so so the money's coming in, coming out. But when I got married, I made a decision. I'm like, this savings account, has, I've, it's been open since I was 12, and, and I still have it. So when I log on to my online banking, it's still there, even though we have our, our, our Alini and my account and stuff. But I, I made a decision. I'm like, I'm not going to take my dad off this account. Because when I log into my online banking, I see it. But when my dad logs on to his online banking, he also sees this account. So there's $5 in this savings account, y'all, 5 $5 in savings, this savings account. And I leave it there. Because you know what my dad does not like to see? $5 in a savings account. <laughs> so I leave it at $5. Now, periodic, I, I check my banking every single day, you know what I mean, to really ensure that the, you know, the, I, yeah, every, I'm, I'm checking it all the time, see what money's gone out. You, have you ever woken up, you're like, Lord Jesus, did they forget? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> You know, it's rent week now, so, um, but periodically, I'll log in, and I'll see that $5 has gone up, and I'm like, this is not Citizens Bank feeling bad for me. (laughs) This is somebody who has access to this account, who sees my need, (laughs) has more resources than I, and decides to make a loving transfer into and so I log in and and my dad calls it a stimulus. <laughs> you know when the, you know when the country was like going down the tubes and the country had to spend mad money to get it and so so my dad we call it our stimulus package. So I text my dad I'm like, "Papai, papai's daddy in Portuguese." I say, "Papai, thank you so much for the stimulus." But the money go like he he transfers it. I transfer that stuff out as soon as I see it. I'm like, "Easy. Back to $5." If the key is the $5 that bothers him, that thing is staying at $5. <laughs> Beautiful. But, man, I love that moment. Love that moment when I log in and, 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 and it's more than five. Could I put money in there? I could put money in there. But I'm not going to guess something if I put money in there. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah, I'm not foolish. So I leave it at five. And, and, and my, dad is, my dad's that kind of dad. 
where if he has what you need, he'll give it. And uh, this is not a sermon about my dad. This is a sermon about my heavenly father who sees your need. And he doesn't despise your need. Saying, what are you doing that you only have that? You're working. Shouldn't you have more money there? God's not like that. God's not a vengeful father. God sees your need and supplies your need. This is a word for somebody who, who feels like that what the circumstance that you're going through has been self-inflicted punishment. God is not casting judgment on you this morning. He, he, he sees the five and he's going to multiply that. Not based upon what you give him. That's what the prosperity gospel says. Give the five, he's going to give you 50. God sees the five and he says, I have so much abundance. If you'll be faithful to me in everything, I will bless you. And my, script, my scripture says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches. It says, cast all your anxieties on me for I care for you. Everywhere in scripture, wherever there's a need, God supplies that need. And, and man, I love my dad for putting some money in that savings account. And as quick as it comes, I take it. But, but I think even more so, there's a word for somebody who feels like maybe life has left you behind. Or you're facing a circumstance that has been so overwhelming that, that it, there, you just feel like you log in and there's never more than five. And I'm talking more than money now. I'm talking like a spiritual bankruptcy. I'm talking about an emotional bankruptcy. I'm talking about a psychological bankruptcy. You wake up and the depression is still there. You wake up and the anxiety is still there. You, you wake up and your sadness is still there. You wake up and, and the relationship is still broken. You wake up and, and you're still not getting along with that person. You're waking up and that person is still betraying you and posting all sorts of things about you and saying all kinds of things behind your back. And, and sometimes we feel like we wake up and circumstances never change. Even though it may seem like the circumstances are not changing, I'm here to say that there's something else, someone else that never changes, and that is the faithfulness of my God. God is with you. He is for you. He is faithful. Can you tell your neighbor, God is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful. I know my dad, and I know that he doesn't like to see it at $5. And, but I even know my heavenly father, he doesn't like to see our brokenness. He, because he's a healing God. He's a perfect God. He's a perfect Savior. And, 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 and so, so I use this example uh, to brag about my heavenly father, my God who is a covenant-keeping God. I have three kind of explanations of God's faithfulness for you real quick. And that God is a covenantal God. He's a covenant keeping God. All throughout the Old Testament, there's the Mosaic covenant, the, the covenant he made with Moses, the Davidic covenant, the one he made with David, the Abrahamic covenant, the one he made with Abraham. And, and I believe that every time that God made this covenant, he didn't swear by anybody else's name. He swears on his own name. And he says, I am so good and I am so faithful that I need nobody else to co-sign or guarantee what I am promising. But that which I have promised, I will see that it comes to pass. God is not depending on your faithfulness to be faithful he will be faithful even when you are faithless. My God is that good that he doesn't need a cosigner. He is the name. He is the cosigner. He is the guarantor. He is the lender. He is the one who gives, guarantees, and provides because my God is a promise-keeping God. He's a covenant-keeping God. He keeps covenant to a thousand generations of those who love him. 
When God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. When God says something, he does something. When God says he's a healer, he is a healer. When God says he is a provider, he is a provider. When God says that he has saved us from our sin, he has indeed cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. God keeps his covenant. God is not like man saying one thing today, changing his mind tomorrow. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Today I don't worship a fickle God, a changing God, a temperamental God. a vengeful God, a super judgmental God, a God who's ready to see you convicted, sentenced, jailed, and the keys are thrown out. No, I serve a God who is faithful. God doesn't change when presidents change, thank God. God doesn't change when Congress changes, thank God. God doesn't change with a Supreme Court ruling, thank God. God is the same, the same one he was at creation, the same one he was at the crucifixion, the same God he was at the ascension, the same God he is at 194 Barton Street. My God has never, ever changed. He's the same, and he keeps his covenant, meaning every promise that you read throughout scripture, you can take to the bank knowing that God will keep his word. God is covenantal. God is steadfast. Meaning he is unmovable by life circumstances. Unmovable. Come hell or high water, God's on his throne. Come this, that, or the other, God is still steadfast. He doesn't change he doesn't waver. He, he doesn't shift places. He doesn't throw his weight around. God is steadfast in his love towards you. God's not changing his mind about you. God doesn't say, I'm so disappointed. How could you? God is a loving God. God is a loving God, steadfast, unmovable. God is covenantal. God is also a a God who is steadfast in his love for us, but God is also a generational God. God is a generational God. What I mean by this is that some people, you know, we talk a lot in circles. When you start talking about spiritual warfare and stuff, there's talk about uh, generational curses, right? Where uh, like alcoholism is a lot of times seen as like a generational curse. If, if it was a struggle in generations past, it means that there's a, an inclination of it uh, in, in a present generation. And, and so people talk about divorce being a generational curse and all sorts of things. But I also believe in, you know, I think sometimes we give the enemy so much focus about curses that we end up forgetting the beauty of blessings. And I believe in generational blessings. And I believe that blessings always break curses. Do you believe that? So when we're covered, uh, when we're saved and set free and covered by the blood of Christ, it means that all sorts of generational curses are broken and that we are now living in a generational blessing. So that once, uh, even if our parents were not faithful, we are now the first domino in what will become a generational blessing for our children and our grandchildren. And what I love about God is that God shows his faithfulness to your children based upon what you decide today. Your kids will reap the harvest of what the seeds you are sowing this morning, which shows the importance of the, the seeds we are sowing. God is a generational God. And, and so I, I, I take this word literally that a thousand generations from now, if this world is still around, uh, a thousand generations from now, uh, my, uh, my, uh, my seed will be uh, experiencing the blessing of what I have decided today in this life. Because God is a generational God. And so I believe that generational blessing is more powerful than generational curses. 
And this morning, I declare over your family and over the children born, unborn, even if you never have kids, I believe that your family, your circle, your sphere of influence will be blessed because you are blessed. I believe that where you plant your feet, you are bringing the gospel. I believe that wherever you, wherever you plant your feet, you are bringing the light of Christ. That your home will not abide in darkness, but it will abide in peace. Because the God of peace lives within you. We're not going to give the enemy more credit than he deserves. We're going to believe that the God who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. I'm going to believe that God's plans for me are greater than any weapon formed against me that will try to prosper. I'm going to believe that God's promises for me in Christ are yes and amen. I'm not going to say the devil's doing this or the devil's doing that. No, I believe that God is up to something good. He is doing something new, and his plans for me are great, and they are to prosper me. So I'm not going to live in fear of what the enemy may or may not do, I'm going to live in the confidence of what God is certainly doing. I'm not going to live with constant ooh, trepidation, dancing around, trying to catch the enemy's next tactic. I'm going to live in the confidence that I am covered by the blood of Christ. God is a covenantal God. He keeps his covenant to a thousand generations. God is steadfast, unmovable, but God is also generational. And this morning, I want to encourage you with this, that the decisions that you make today will, will reap a harvest generations to come. Let's, let's continue here because there's some more good stuff that I need to share with you. Are you enjoying this so far? Can you, can you tell your neighbor, this is for you. This is for you. This is for you. This is for us. This is for all of us. So last week we talked briefly about, not so much briefly, we talked pretty extensively about Joseph, the brothers. I kind of recapped that this morning. When we shift out of Genesis into the book of Exodus, there's something that happens there because a lot of generations passed from Genesis, the end of Genesis to the first chapter of Exodus. And so the story ends in Genesis that all of Joseph's brothers ended up moving along with dad over to Egypt and they were kind of hanging out there for the rest of their days and And it says in Exodus chapter 1 that all of the brothers ended up dying. Joseph died. Dad died. The whole family died. But their offspring lived on. And so so these people, the 12 tribes of Israel now, are now living in Egypt. And they were multiplying like crazy. I mean, mad kids all the time. Uh, And it was just like this massive explosion of the Jewish people in the country of Egypt. And so it says that the new pharaoh came into power, the new leader of Egypt, and he didn't know Joseph. He didn't know the story of what had happened. He didn't know the whole story about, you know, the famine and and Joseph being in charge and the brothers coming in, and now they all moved into Egypt. He didn't know that whole thing. And so all he sees is that the Jewish people, the people of Israel, the Hebrews, whatever you want to call them, are multiplying like crazy, mad of them. And so he gets all intimidated by the the rapid expansion of of the Jewish people. And he says that we need to enslave these people because they are multiplying way too fast. I want to stop here, pause here, take a moment here to explain two key points that are happening in this story. First and foremost, what blows my mind about this is that this whole story of how the Jewish people became enslaved started with God making a way for the, the children of Jacob to get over there or the children of Isaac Jacob to get over there to Egypt. So there was this open door that God gave them to get over here. But now we find that once they're there, God is now enslaving them. 
Isn't it weird that sometimes God, God's open doors does not necessarily mean the absence of strife? Like, God, you brought us here. Why are you now allowing us to become slaves in the land that you brought us to? Don't you feel that way sometimes with God when he opens up a massive door for you? Like, you were asking God for a job with like, and you, and you even put like on a post-it in your prayer room, this amount of money. And then you go to the interview and you're like, okay, let's talk money. And then they're like, what are you expecting? And then you slide across your post-it and they're like, done deal, sign. It's like, open door. Then you're there for six months. Things are smooth sailing, honeymoon season at the job. Everybody likes you even. Like nobody's stealing your food out of the fridge in the break room. Like everything's good, right? And then the company starts like losing profits. Layoffs are coming. Meanwhile, you've racked up a credit card based upon what the company said they were going to pay. You've started making moves on a house. You bought your girl a new ring. Just go down the line. And then everything that God had promised, you're slowly seeing it slip away. Instead of hallelujah, it's like, Lord, have mercy. It's like, Lord, I thought you were in this. Right? Like, God, you brought me to it. Why are you not taking me through it? Like, God, I didn't need to come here. I didn't need to, to, to start making all these decisions based upon a paycheck that I thought I was going to get. And now you're going to abandon me? This is the way the people of Israel felt. If you fast forward the story, God eventually, spoiler alert, let them, led them out of slavery. He leads them into the wilderness, and they're like, God, why did you bring us out into the wilderness to die? It would have been better if we were back in Egypt. And then you start looking back to where you were, and you start saying, God, if you had just left me there, I would have been happy. But when you were there, you said, God, if you'll take me there, I would be happy. So you know what the, matter, the, 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 the bottom line is? No matter where we are, we're not going to be happy. <laughs> if you're basing your happiness on circumstance, you're never going to be happy. That's my clarification statement. Because half the crowd was like, that is theologically incorrect, Shane. <laughs> if you're basing your happiness on circumstances, you're never going to be happy. Because no matter where you're going to be, you're going to find something to be unhappy about. You'll find something petty to be unhappy about. The AC at this job is too cold. My nose is bleeding. You'll find something. <laughs> something right have you ever noticed in the summer we will complain about the heat can't wait till winter winter comes polar vortex moves in with a vengeance and we're saying i can't wait to get me some florida weather right springtime comes allergies Fall comes, fall allergies. I never knew fall allergies was a thing. I think it's an American thing. I never heard of fall allergies in any other part of the world. Ragweed and all that stuff. Isn't ragweed allergy like a thing? I don't know. Let's move on. But it just goes to show that humans are never content. We're just always finding something. My gosh, it's 10.08. I got to run. 
another thing that I find here is that Pharaoh was growing all touchy because the people of Israel were growing. You know the best way to identify who your enemy is? Who gets intimidated when they see you growing? This is how the conversation goes with those kinds of people. Oh, you got a new job? No joy. How much you making? New car, huh? Must be nice. You know what you should say? It is. I see you're dating. Must be nice. You moved, huh? Let me see some pictures. It is jealousy in its purest form. And I don't mean pure in a good way. In its most demonic form. Your friends will celebrate when you're celebrating. New place, when we coming over. Notice the difference. New car? When you pick me up. New boo? When you're putting a ring on it. Notice the difference. New boo, huh? How'd you meet? You know what you need to start doing? Not answering. The more you try to explain your growth, the more they will be bothered. When I wrote this down in my notes, I'm like, I should have put, like, fire emojis next to this point on my notes. Because I'm like, this is going to resound. It's a problem. If you can't celebrate with another person's victories, that shows more about you. If your way of feeling big is by bringing everybody else down, that shows how small you are. You know what big people do? Celebrate when people are celebrating. Big people cry when other people are crying. Big people rejoice when other people are rejoicing. Big people don't try to bring other people down. Small people bring people down. Petty people bring, petty pe- bring people down. Childish people bring people down. You want to be big? Celebrate other people's victories. Celebrate it like it's your own. They got a job, it's like you got a job. Even if you're unemployed. 
Because if they are stepping into a season of blessing that you're still asking God for, it doesn't mean that God has cursed you. Celebrate with them. Because in celebrating with them, you are saying, if God, if you're doing it for them, you're also able to do it for me. You may have, I don't know what you went through to get to the season that you're now in. And I don't need to know the fullness of that, what that process looked like. So I'm just going to celebrate with you and wait on God for me. That's what being big looks like. That's what maturity looks like. Is that I am able to celebrate with you. Man, I want to be a, like, I will celebrate the small stuff. You got a new vacuum? (laughs) Invite me over, let's try it out. Right? You got a new microwave? I'm bringing the popcorn. Like, every mo, one time we bought a lamp. A lamp. And we threw a lamp party for a lamp. That is what maturity looks like. Nice lamp, huh? No. If you're going to say nice lamp, huh, you're not welcome to the lamp party. You're not welcome at my lamp party. You're going to say nice lamp, huh? The huh is where we need to cut it. It's always the huh that shows the shadiness. It's the huh. Oh, no. And the O's and the huhs. I want y'all to be the O and huh cops. Wherever there's a huh, you'd be like, shady. 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 So the whole story continues. I'm going I'm to be done. I'm going to end. And uh, the story continues, right? And, and so the people of Israel multiplied, and Pharaoh put them in slavery. God heard the cry and the plight of his people, and God decides to move on behalf of his people. And so he's going to raise up somebody that's going to set the people free. But before we get to that point, Pharaoh was so intimidated by the growth of the Israelites that, that he said to the, all the, he brought like the whole, all the midwives of Egypt together. The midwives are the, the ladies that, that deliver the children. And he said to all the midwives, he said, when you deliver a child, a Hebrew child, if that child's a boy, kill him on the spot. If that child is a girl, let her live. The midwives all say to, to Pharaoh, these Hebrew women are too vigorous. That's what, they, that's what the midwives say. These Hebrew women are too vigorous. They have the child before we arrive. The Hebrews are just popping out the children like it's nothing. <laughs> too vigorous. That's what the Bible says. The Hebrews are too vigorous. Having children before we arrive. They were a little bit deceitful. They were there, but they felt convicted. They felt convicted about killing children. Fill in the blanks for the way our world is right now. There was a conviction there. And, and so, so this is all continuing. And so Pharaoh says, okay, if you're letting these Hebrew boys live, now I'm going to go around, I'm going to collect all the Hebrew boys, and we're going to throw them in the river, the Nile. We're going to kill all of them. Kill all the Hebrew boys. And there is one mother in Egypt who had a Hebrew boy and held him for as long as she could till a day came where she said, I'm going to put him in a basket and set him on the river and may God's will be done. What I find is on the, in the same river where all these boys were dying, yeah. there is one Hebrew boy that has floated to the top. In this place of death, in this river of death where bodies, I just picture in my mind's eye, bodies of babies just floating to the top on this same river, there is one Hebrew boy preserved. And he floats down river to Pharaoh's daughter who is bathing in this river. 
She pulls, draws this boy out of the basket and sees that he is pleasing to the eyes and names him Moses for he was drawn out of the water. So he's raised as an Egyptian, but his blood was Hebrew. He raises up, grows up as an Egyptian, eventually finding out his roots. And this is the man that God would tap to be the one who would set the captives, the Hebrews, free. You see, in a story of death, God always brings about life. Whenever God wants to set somebody free, he's going to pick somebody who has a foot in both worlds. You see, when God wanted to set the Hebrews free, he picked somebody who was both Hebrew and Egyptian because they had a foot. He had a foot in both of those worlds. He was an Egyptian to approach Pharaoh. He was a Hebrew to set the Hebrews free. When God decided to set the world free, he had to choose somebody who would have a foot in both worlds. So he was fully God and fully man. God, to be able to approach God and achieve our salvation, man, so that he could take upon himself our sin. A foot in both worlds to bridge the gap. You see, God is a covenant-keeping God. He is a steadfast God and a generational God. Even if the story looks like it's heading in a trajectory of death, God always turns around dead stories and brings them back to life. Because God is that faithful. You know, this morning, I stand here and I preach a sermon as I do every single Sunday. And I consider it the honor of a lifetime to do it. But I've been really thinking about this subject of God being a generational God. Whenever I talk about my calling into the ministry, I always mention how I'm standing here and I'm standing really on the shoulders of a great-grandfather, a grandfather, and a father who are all pastors. And I posted this on my social media accounts and I brought it here this morning because these are my great-grandfather's sermon notes from September 8th, 1947. His name was Strider Lee Wood pastor in Church of the Nazarene, Delhart, Texas. And his text that morning was Proverbs 12, chapter 7. Proverbs 12, verse 7 says, The wicked are overthrown and are not, but the house of the righteous shall stand. There's his notes in the back, his sermon notes on the front, and the fact that I can now read these notes 72 years later about the house of the righteous standing, where Strider Lee Wood's great-grandson Shane Elton Wood Lima. And Wood Lima happened because missions happened. Wood would never get with Lima unless missions happened. Dalhart, Texas would not meet Cape Verde without missions happening. That whole story comes full circle. 
And I can stand on this platform and preach the same gospel about the righteous and their house shall stand. Because God is a covenant-keeping God. He's a steadfast God. He's a generational God. This morning, I am reaping the blessings of what he preached on September 8th, 1947. Because God stands outside of time. And he blesses up to a thousand generations of those who call him Lord. And so this morning, I want to point you to Jesus. The one who came and died so that we could live. And today, we pray a breaking of any spirit of a generational curse over you or your family. And we declare a generational blessing that will commence as of today as we make a decision to call him Lord. Could you stand to your feet this morning?